Hello and welcome to the Radio Debrief podcast where we run down the big stories making the headlines. I'm your host Thomas McCann and I'm joined this week by two returning guests, Niall Fancy. Hello. And Aaron Proctor. Hello. How are we getting on guys? How's lockdown treating you? Alright, I just spent today watching the last episode of One Division, so. I still haven't watched that. Everybody's telling me to watch it. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> feel like I'm missing out. But we're not here to talk about One Division today. We're here to talk about the important stories that have taken place over the last two weeks. Um, last week was the first episode where I had two guests provide two of the stories, and we're going to be continuing in that fashion this week. And um, Niall rather annoyingly managed to beat both me and Aaron to the biggest story in Scotland this week at least. So, Niall, do you want to explain the story you've picked? Um, I'll do my best. Uh, So this is the absolute mess that's unfolding uh, at Holyrood over the um, accusations against Nicola Sturgeon that she misled misled Parliament um, on top of many other uh, allegations that have then since come to light. Um, They're about Ten things going on at once here, and uh, nobody really knows exactly what's going to get who in trouble. Um, but the gist of it is that uh, finally, after about two years, both the the former first minister Alex Salmond and Nicola Sturgeon have appear, appeared in front of the committee that's investigating the uh, court case against Alex Salmond uh, and the handling of that by Nicola Sturgeon and her government. Um, and the 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 main news this week was surrounding their performances in front of the committee. Um, both delivered uh, relatively calm and measured responses um, to the questions that were put to them, uh, but it was clear that it was an emotionally charged event uh, and that they were trying to score points against one another, which was a strange and uh, an exciting phenomenon given how close um, they'd been for so long that these two giants of Scot- Scottish politics were now publicly going at it. Um, so, so Alex Salmond uh, put on quite a strong performance, and I think he was him and his team will have been quite pleased after uh, what he said in front of the committee and how he uh, conducted himself. Um, and things were looking uh, pretty dire for the the Sturgeon camp um, before her appearance at the committee. Um, but she too put on quite a calculated, quite a calm, um, and and genuine show, and. Uh, I think it's unclear now who's come out uh, on top and uh, who's who's in the right, who's in the wrong. Yeah, it's definitely been a very um, dramatic process because however however you feel about Nicola Sturgeon, whether you're in the camp of, um, you know, she broke the ministerial code and she should resign or, um, you know, she's admitted to having mishandled things in the past and we should just move on from it. I think whatever side you're on, You feel bad for her after what happened at the inquiry, given that she was interviewed for eight hours, which is a very long time to try and have to defend yourself against people questioning your character and your motives and such. But I just wanted to... Well, Aaron, I wanted to get thoughts from you, especially as a former SNP member. What did you make of Nicola Sturgeon's um, evidence that she gave to the inquiry? I thought she did a really good job, I guess. Um, I think the whole thing is very complicated and confusing to look at from an outsider's perspective. And if you haven't got 
if you haven't been following it fully from the get-go, it's kind of confusing to try to get into it and see what's happening. Um, but I think Nicholas Sturgeon's performance was good at the inquiry. Um, I think she gave a solid case. I mean, there was a lot of times where she said, I do not recall, yeah. which, I mean, is fair enough if she doesn't. Because, um, I mean, if you can't recall, you can't recall. Um, but, yeah, I don't know. I, the bit that did annoy me was when the conser- um, the conservative Myrtle Fraser decided to ask her to apologise for Alex Salmon's actions and she basically was like, no, I will not be. So I thought she did a good job of feminism right there. I think she, the whole time she was she stuck to her guns, she didn't really change her story. I think she did a quite good job and I don't see um, how the Tories could put through a vote of no confidence after that question. Yeah, I was going to come on to that actually, the Tories motioning a vote of no confidence before Nicola Sturgeon had even spoken to the committee, before she'd even given any evidence. Um, do you think that that was a good decision from them? Because, they've, I mean, from where I'm standing, they've been left with egg on their face a bit because they were clearly trying to kickstart something that's massively backfired on them now because the inquiries resulted in at least a further... Last I checked, it was a... Further seven thousand, seven or eight thousand have now um, joined the SNP. So, do you think the Tories were unwise to make that decision? Oh, yeah. absolutely. Um, but I mean, I th- I know I can kind of get where they're coming from because they know the only reason, to, the only way they can defeat the SNP is to get rid of Nicola Sturgeon. Nicola Sturgeon is such a strong political person, like he's such a strong uh, politician. Um, that everybody, a lot of people in this country prefer her than the SNP. People are voting for Nicola Sturgeon and not voting for the SNP. I think that's the wide consensus of people in Scotland. I could be wrong, but I think that's quite a wide consensus. And they know if they get rid of Nicola Sturgeon, any leader that takes over for the SNP will not have as high of a, I guess, approval rating as Nicola Sturgeon does. So I, it's a it's a good way to try get more votes, but it was pretty stupid. It's not a good was, way to get votes. <laughs> I think it was unwise given the circumstances um, of Ruth Davidson's career. I think to have uh, accusations of um, anti-democratic uh, behaviour coming from the Conservatives um, at a time when they're prejudging. Uh, two investigations which are still underway uh, into this case and that their leader, their former leader, will be going down to the unelected House of Lords uh, very soon is slightly um, hypocritical. Uh, and I th- and Nicola Sturgeon did quite a good job of pointing that out every time uh, she was attacked by Ruth Davidson uh, at FMQs the other day. Um, and I think, I think Aaron is right. I think uh, it was surprising just how much Nicola Sturgeon stood up for herself in that committee uh, meeting. I think she was very clear that many people had made mistakes. She was one of them, but that most of the mistakes and the, the, the most serious mistakes that are being investigated here weren't done under her authority. Weren't, uh, although she's responsible for the party, uh, she was very clear about what she was and wasn't responsible for, um, which I think benefited her hugely in terms of public opinion. Yeah, 
Absolutely, because I was following her statement that she gave to the inquiry, and when it comes to politics, uh, I guess it's a good trait that will serve me well going into the journalism industry, but I'm equally sceptical of all political parties, to be honest. I don't really feel like I truly relate to any of them, Um, and with Nicola Sturgeon's testimony... I took the sort of balanced approach of I was thinking, well, you know, she's admitting that there has been wrongdoings within the party and she's partly responsible for that, but also a lot of... I feel like a lot of politicians in her position would have fought tooth and nail to say that there was no wrongdoing and that they would say, you know, um, in my mind, we, you know, did everything we could or we, you know, we thought we were doing everything right and she didn't come out and say that. She came out... And she admitted that there was wrongdoing. I mean, the fact that the chief investigator appointed to the case was someone who knew the identities of the complainers, that was a very big mistake. Um, The judicial review ended up costing £600,000 in taxpayers' money without any sort of real outcome. That was obviously a mistake as well. But, yeah, I would agree that she she did well to... at the very least, she did well to protect her own image, and clearly, like you were saying, Aaron, she's very popular in Scotland because her um, there's not many politicians who could go to an inquiry where their competence as a leader is under question and whether or not they broke the ministerial code, and they come out of it with an improved popularity rating. Like that's just something you don't see. I think it's worth pointing out that the SNP did make serious mistakes um, Mm. and also that flaws, significant flaws in uh, the system of Scottish government have been exposed, um, which aren't necessarily Nicola Sturgeon's fault. um, But this isn't... She isn't going to come out of this looking clean. uh, Neither is the SNP and the the whole Scottish Parliament uh, will need to do some rejigging as a result of this. And I think one of the interesting... um, one of the interesting byproducts is this uh, concern about uh, James James Wolfe, the Lord Advocate, or the Lord Advocate's role in general in Scotland, um, as being conflicted, uh, because he is at once uh, the, the 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 main advisor to the Scottish government on uh, on uh, legal issues, but he's also the chief prosecutor in Scotland, um, and so he's making decisions on what should and shouldn't be, uh, uh, which evidence should and shouldn't be shown to the committee and revealed to the public. Um, and at the same time, he is the government's main advisor on legal issues. Um, so it's there, there's there's quite a um, debate to be had in, in Scotland's judiciary about whether it's democratic or not to have someone performing both roles. Um, and I think, well, right now, um, uh, the consensus is that that will be reformed as as soon as there's time to do that. Yeah, because their their level of impartiality was called into question when they ended up redacting evidence that was set to be given by Alex Salmond. Um, but again, this is a very confusing inquiry, to be honest. I've been following it since day one and I still don't have a firm understanding on what's actually going on half the time. Yeah, but no. bas- basically, what what I know for certain is Nicola Sturgeon has been accused of acting improperly um, by Alex Salmon and by his team. 
Um, obviously, he was uh, cleared of any wrongdoing in the courts, which was admitted by Nicola Sturgeon at the inquiry, but she also said that he had admitted things to her that, you know, crossed a line, and so it's 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 between whether Nicola Sturgeon did lie about anything and whether or not Alex Salmon is a good source of information given what what he's been accused of. But um, suggesting that Nicola Sturgeon had broken the ministerial code was obviously a very serious issue and they were well, the, the Tories mainly were calling on her to resign. But after the way she performed at the inquiry, do you think we're going to see a resignation from Nicola Sturgeon anytime soon? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. No, I don't. Um, go ahead. Sorry. Sorry. Um, I mean, today, um, just today, it was found that Boris Johnson lied about COVID papers. Mm. Um, will the Scottish Tories be asking him to resign? Probably not. Um, so it, it's, it does kind of seem like it's one rule for them, another rule for everybody else. Um, yeah. But if if the, the accusations turn out to be true, I'm sure she will do the right thing and resign because she is that type of person. She cares about her like she cares about her position and she cares about Scotland. Let's be real. Um, so I think she would resign if those accusations do become true. But after um, after Wednesday, I don't see that becoming to fruition. So I don't see her resigning anytime soon. Yeah, neither neither do I. I think right now what it looks like is that the committee won't be decisive in whether or not Nicola Sturgeon's career continues as First Minister. Um, I think because the committee is split down party lines, I think there are four SNPs, two Labour, uh, one Conservative, one Lib Dem and one Independent. And so it's quite likely that whatever verdict they reach will be split. Uh, and not entirely convincing, and just as murky and messy as the whole process has been so far. Um, I don't think we will see her, her head rolling as a result of this, the findings of this committee. Uh, I think what this, the, the more interesting finding will be that of uh, James Hamilton QC, um, and he's investigating the main accusation against her, which is the one uh, of her breaking the ministerial code uh, by lying to Parliament about when she first heard about these allegations against Alex Salmond. Um, mm. And I think she did... She did an okay job of explaining that circumstance. She basically said that, although she did hear about these accusations uh, three or four days earlier, on the 29th uh, of March, uh, she was only made aware of a general kind of harassment complaint rather than specifics. And it was only uh, four days later when Alex Salmon told her the details of what was being said about him that she understood what this was all about. And so she said that the first meeting was eclipsed by the second one, so she had no reason to remember the, the first clearly, as there weren't details being revealed there, which is plausible, but it's, it still doesn't reveal whether or not she knowingly uh, lied to Parliament. And I think the finding of uh, James Hamilton will be the really important one. And, I, and ult ultimately, it will be the election that decides her fate is, is currently... Uh, the lay of the land. I don't think we'll see a vote of no confidence uh, kicking kicking Nicola Sturgeon out of her job at the moment. Yeah, definitely. Because uh, no matter how you feel about Nicola Sturgeon, whether you you know whether you love her or you hate her, 
you can't you can't deny um, what an amazing job she's done for the party. There will be people who disagree on whether or not she's done a good job as leader or whether or not the SNP have done a good job as the ruling party in Scotland. But what she's done for her own party in terms of popularity, you can't diminish that achievement. The fact that they um, held the largest majority in the Scottish Parliament and the fact that um, I think it was back in 2015 there was an absolute skyrocket of Google searches down south in England of people asking if they are eligible to vote for the Scottish National Party <laughs> because she was she was doing such a good job at promoting the party's image and yeah like I said before the fact that you can come out of an inquiry like that calling into question how good you are as a leader not only unscathed but in a better position than you were when you went in with the general public then it that can that can only be a good thing for the SNP because I was thinking that this inquiry would impact the election but I was thinking it would impact the SNP negatively not significantly but I thought it would impact them negatively but now I'm thinking the opposite I'm thinking that the SNP could actually do better than predicted because I mean, it's it's not been there's nothing in this inquiry has been made very clear about what's happened. But one thing that's been made very clear is that Nicola Sturgeon is very popular with people in Scotland. Yeah, I mean, even the other day and yesterday, more polls for independence came out, and it was higher than it was the last one. Hmm. Um, but it's like 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 you said, whether you like her or hate her, Nicola Sturgeon is a great politician. She's an incredible politician. Doesn't mm. matter what point of view you're looking at it, she's really good at her job. Yeah, yeah. she knows I, how to connect with people. She's very personable. That's that's true. I I agree, but I think we do as a country we need to be careful about this because the SNP's success is great as from the point of view of an SNP supporter, but the SNP's dominance breeds exactly what's happening here, because if you have a, a party in control with no real opposition for 15 years or nearly 15 years that can lead to sloppiness it can lead to mm. um, corruption not that it necessarily has here I think we'll find out um, that's not for us to say quite yet but there is that risk um, that unopposed government for that long in a country can lead uh, to some to some issues and unless there's reform here I don't think people will be happy with a one-party uh, dominated system. I think there has to be reform in several areas. People have to be shown that something's been done about this once we have well, our I mean, verdict. Our voting system is put in place so that there is never a, a majority government, which for some reason there has been and it probably will happen again. Um, so really, it's like our, our voting system is there so it's not a one-party state. So it's like, what do you do if people just keep voting for the SNP? How do you <laughs> it's not the change. SNP's. It's, no, absolutely, I agree. It's not the SNP's fault. The other, it's up to the other parties to get their act together and challenge them. Um, but I'm, I'm just saying, uh, you know, the SNP's dominance is not even for an SNP supporter isn't necessarily worth celebrating because it can lead to more situations like this where they, where they uh, are the the architects of their own downfall. Yeah. Yeah. Because if a if a party can be so dominant for so long, going relatively unchecked then that's that's obviously never a good thing for democracy but it's it's like Aaron said you know we have a very fair and democratic voting system in Scotland but the fact is um 
there's no there's nothing you can do if people just keep voting for the SNP. Um, we're just going to keep seeing SNP governments. Um, but obviously there's a lot that's been happening in the inquiry where we need to be careful what we say here because the inquiry's ongoing and the legal challenges are still ongoing and I'm sure we'll be getting more news on that as it develops. But for now we're going to move on to our second story which is brought to us by Aaron Proctor. So Aaron, do you want to just explain the story you chose and why you've chosen it? Yes. I mean, I feel like it's not been um, talked about a lot in mainstream media um, but it's Biden bombing Syria. So after just over a month of Biden being in presidency and saying um, diplomacy is back in the United States, he has already bombed um, Syria, which took Trump three months. Mm. Uh, I think what's important to note is the way the media has also covered this. Um, when Trump did it in, in his first three months, the media had a total uproar, um, they went mental, but for some reason the media this time has hardly touched it. I think yeah. that's really interesting. I agree, I think this is a really interesting story because when you have a president coming in to succeed Donald Trump, they can essentially, in the, in the eyes of the media, at least they can essentially do no wrong because no matter no matter what you do it can never be as just outright insane as the last four years have been under a different president but um yeah so biden gave the green light for an airstrike in syria against iran-backed militants after an attack against um u.s and coalition forces in iraq um i think it was earlier this month um but there's there's differing stories. The the Pentagon have claimed there's only one fatality, uh, whereas War Monitor reported twenty two fatalities. Um, but yeah, it's an interesting point you make because do you think that Biden is given a bit more leeway in the media and given a bit um bit of a longer leash, I suppose, because of the drama of the last four years i mean it does seem that way and i think american media does seem to be quite biased in that way because a lot of it is quite left-wing i mean because in america they don't have the same off-com restrictions as, as we do where television has where broadcast media has to be completely unbiased um so it does seem that a lot of these left-wing news channels are just kind of brushing it under the rug and not really making a big deal about it. Um, but I did just um, look it up quickly, but Biden's also called off a second target. So he's called that one mm-hmm. off. That must have been because of the uproar that was caused on Twitter, etc. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think... I'd... Sorry, go ahead. Oh no, I... Yeah, you can go. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was, I was just saying it's di- it's difficult to know uh, what's being done wrong here? It's it's obviously the, the the whole situation is complex. That goes without saying. But it's also um, it's also a military operation, and so what we're told about the decisions being made is extremely limited, and we don't really know the circumstances under which Biden had to make that decision. I mean, the the information we have is that U.S. Um, 
US personnel have been under attack recently and that something needed to be done to retaliate. Um, and it, it doesn't seem as if any civilians were killed in, in these 22 fatalities. And um, the, the Defence uh, Secretary, Lloyd Austin, was quite confident that they'd hit exactly what they were planning to hit and that nothing had gone wrong. Um, and so it's difficult to say whether this was something Biden could have avoided or, or should have done differently, because from the reporting so far, or at least the official stance so far is that everything went well. Um, but yeah, it's true. It certainly doesn't look good, even if it was necessary. Yeah, the thing I think the thing that prompts most concern is there was only 10 days between the um, attack on US and coalition personnel and the retaliation from the US government. So it was not it was not a decision that was mulled over for very long and it's just it's more not not so much whether it was morally the right thing to do whether or not um biden is right to use his military powers to exert force over their enemies it's more to do with what do you think this does for biden's image because he presented himself as this sort of typical sort of old school president who, you know, his mission is to unite the people and um, get the country back on its feet. And he was very much promoting, you know, a wholesome family image, you know, all all the hardships of the last four years are going to be gone. You know, this is going to be a much nicer time for the American people. And now not very long into his tenure as president, he's doing things like this and giving the green light to carry out airstrikes. So, yeah, I guess that's the question. What do you think um, his portrayal in the news as someone who is willing to use his military force, what do you think that does for his image? Well, I feel like um, old school politicians and American presidents were also quite like that (laughs) in a way. Um, I guess it does kind of show how closed off and um, vague Biden was during his campaign trail. He never really gave much away about what he was going to do. He gave a few things that were quite progressive. I mean, he's a bit of a centrist, so he's... I I guess it's... Because he didn't give away that much, I don't know if it's surprising or if it's unsurprising or if it's kind of just like oh okay that's an interesting choice Mm. um i don't know because we don't really know a lot about his character and obviously um when he was vice president with obama they started the war in iraq was it i truly can't remember the total details iraq Iraq was bush oh i can't whatever one obama did (laughs) Um, no, it's, it's, so, it's true. Obama was Obama was keen on an airstrike, um, yeah. so <laughs> it, it, it isn't it isn't uh, surprising at all um, that that that's you know something he's capable of because uh, he's a born and bred Washington politician who came up uh, in the same camp as Obama and Hillary Clinton, and uh, they certainly didn't shy away from conflict. Um, he isn't, I think. This 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 will be part of the process of the uh, left wing in America realizing, well, those who haven't already, that he isn't an ultra liberal, um, pacifist, uh, 
that they that they'd love to have in office. Um, he is he is uh, very much in the centre, uh, and he's willing to do probably exactly what Obama did in order to defend uh, the 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 country's interests uh, in the Middle East. Uh, so I think we can expect to see more from this. Um, and of course, it also benefits him in terms of his support from the right, because decisive military action. Uh, isn't going to do him any harm when it comes to uh, America's conservative voters. Um, mm. So I don't, I don't think it's surprising at all. Um, I think it, the question is, the, you know, to, to what extent? Yeah, because Trump just really changed the game entirely. Everything, everything was different under Trump. You know, the media tend to come, come down very hard on the president. Uh, when it was Obama, the media came down on him very hard. Um, and with Trump, the media came down on him very hard, and Trump's attacks on the media only made the media go after him more and more and more, and now that they're getting given a bit of peace and a bit of respect from the new president, it does feel like they are less inclined to at- attack him with the same to the same standard that they normally would go after a president when they um, should be when they should be called out, um, because they know that Trump could very well come back. You know, if they paint a negative image of Joe Biden, then Trump could come back in um, 2024, 2025, and get re-elected, which I'm sure they don't want. But this this the story with Biden bombing Syria is interesting because it's not the only um, it's not the only issue in the beginning of his presidency that's not really been picked up on in the media because something that I've been reading about is Biden's promise that after the mass deportations carried out by Trump there would be zero deportations in his first 100 days as president so that was something he pledged no one would be deported in his first 100 days as president in less than 30 days 26,000 people had been deported. <laughs> so, again, not something major media outlets are really picking up on. And is it because they haven't heard about it, or is it because they just don't want to jeopardise what they have now? Yeah. Um, it's quite jarring, to be mm. fair. Um, and I also read that he isn't stop isn't closing a immigration camp that's near the border um i don't really mm. know the full ins and outs of that story um but i quick i i read that somewhere um so i thought that was quite interesting as well um it does seem like he's kind of it's <laughs> kind of misleading his voters in a way um but it's it is like niall said it's to what extent does he go from now how far will he go and what like is this the worst thing he'll do or will it just get progressively worse as yeah. his term goes on because if if it continues it's a it's a concerning look at the future of what it will be like holding the president to account because when you're dealing with anybody in politics whether it's Joe Biden or Nicola Sturgeon, one of the things that the media will always pick up on is when a politician has pledged to do something or they've promised to do something and they've either not 
delivered on it or haven't gone as far as they said they would or just outright done the opposite. And Biden saying, I won't deport anybody in the first 100 days and having deported 26,000 people within a month, that is just a glaring contradiction of what he said, which is something that, you know, needs to be called out, no matter well, I don't th- what your leanings are. I don't think that the American um, left-leaning media was looking for a promise like that, and I don't think anyone was expecting a promise like that to be kept. I think what people mm. wanted to hear was a president who wasn't proud of the fact that America has an immigration problem, who wasn't proud of the fact that they were bombing people, um, and wasn't proud of the fact that they were pulling out of uh, climate change uh, agreements, etc. Uh, so they, what they wanted was someone on their side who had, um, who was a little less vocal in his, uh, in his um, attacks on the issues in America, and that handled it in a little bit of a, of a more dignified way. So I don't think anyone was expecting him to, to keep that promise. Um, but there's no denying that America has an issue with its southern border, and it's no surprise that people have to be um, deported. Um, I think it's not so much an issue of holding the president to account. I think the, I think the, the media and also a lot of um, the people who take in the left-wing media have a bit of an issue um, with a president like Trump who will shout and make a fuss about it and um, and be proud of the fact that it's America first, that America is doing these things to keep people out of its country. Um, every president has to do that. It's, and it's, it's, uh, it's unfortunate, um, but, it, but to some extent it has to happen. And Biden just hasn't made a fuss about it, um, which mm. I suppose has satisfied people to the point where they're not attacking him, but it's true, there could be more, there could be more said on it. Yeah. And it's like you were saying as well, Biden has the ability to pull the house together because he is quite centrist, So, and he's also well respected in the house on both sides given just how long he's served the people as a elected representative. But yeah, it's Republicans will be right behind that idea because a, a country that was founded on immigrants seemed to have pretty shocking views on immigrants, but um yeah so the left wing media don't really do enough to call out Biden in the same way that right wing media like Fox News definitely didn't do enough to call out Trump and regardless of which side of the political spectrum you lean on I th- I think it should be a widely accepted thing that you want to have all the facts, regardless of whether or not they make someone that you like look bad or make someone you hate look good. You want to make sure that you're making informed decisions based on all of the information and not just being sort of selective in the truth and, you know, only... So, like, if CNN were only pushing good stories about Biden and not giving any attention to airstrikes and, you know, deportations and things like that, but it's like you were saying, Aaron, it will be curious to see what else Biden does during this presidency that does or does not get picked up by left-wing media outlets. But for now, we're just going to move on to the final story of the week, which was one that I chose because I was quite surprised it wasn't getting a lot of coverage in the British media. But um, the story that I've chosen is that the British government have faced criticism after they announced that they were cutting their funding of humanitarian aid to Yemen by more than 
half. The country's been left devastated by a civil war and relies on funding from the international community to help provide food, shelter and medicine for the civilian population. So when I read about this story I was quite surprised that it hadn't really been picked up on given all the talk about the budget that we've had recently with Rishi Sunak announcing the spring budget for this year. Um, but yeah, the UK has pledged this year to donate £87 million to Yemen. Whereas the year before, um, I don't have well, I don't have the exact figure in front of me, but um, the sum that they've pledged this year is only fifty four percent of what they pledged the year before, um, and obviously, uh, Yemen is currently facing one of the greatest humanitarian crises that we've seen, um, and given the wealth of. Um, the UK, the the wealth that the British government are able to tap into, even despite COVID, do you think that cutting humanitarian aid is an appropriate way for a country as rich as the UK to behave? No, and certainly not to do so quietly and hope that no one notices. Um, mm. I think it's understandable that corners need to be cut at the moment. Um, but I think it's a really bad look to to uh, to quietly shut down half of your aid to the to one of the um, one of the world's most impoverished countries, I think you at least owe people an explanation and say up front, we're going to need to cut. Uh, we're going to need to cut some some funding here. Uh, we really regret this, um, but at least at least then they'd be being honest to people. So no, I don't think it was right. Yeah, and obviously, yeah, no. given the billions being spent, the amount the the amount of money going out of the country to humanitarian aid is very small in comparison. Yeah, I mean, I think it also begs the question if this is the route they're going, the Conservatives are going down with Yemen, how will they treat um, distributing vaccine surplus to other poorer countries around the world? Mm. Um, I think looking at it as a bigger issue. Um, I get we're, I get because we're now in an economic crisis that you want to try and get as much money for this country so they can fund like stuff like furlough and I'm assuming there's going to be a help out to eat, uh, a help to help out scheme again and that mm. needs funded but is the way forward to cut international aid I'm not sure yeah it's it's a it's a bad look for the government and what makes it even worse for them is not only are they cutting their funding for relief to the people in Yemen but they are currently giving financial backing to one of the sides fighting in Yemen they are providing financial support to the Saudi led coalition that is fighting in Yemen right now so they are fun- they are funding the war while simultaneously cutting back funding for the people impacted by it which is obviously a very bad look <laughs> For the government, well, they're they're not just funding the war, but they're selling they're selling weapons. Yeah, um, they're selling weapons directly uh, to the Saudis, and it's it's uh, beyond doubt that uh, many of those over the years have ended up in the wrong hands. And so, yeah, it's it's extremely uh, it's extremely hypocritical. Profiting yeah. off the destruction, one could say. And it is fair to say as well that the UK is not alone in this. Um, other countries are. Well, I mean, obviously, it's totally opinion-based whether or not you 
think that your country should be, you know, helping out in other countries across the world. It depends on if you take a more sort of globalist view or a more national view about, you know, people looking after their own and such. But my personal opinion is um, a country as rich as the UK cutting humanitarian aid to a country like Yemen is completely and utterly indefensible and shameful because these people rely on this money. Um, It could mean the difference between life and death for a lot of people in that country and the fact that they're cutting their funding whilst running guns to Saudi Arabia is just beyond shocking. But again, they're not alone in this because the UN started a campaign to raise funds um, for the people of Yemen and they set a target of $3.85 billion was how much they wanted to raise um, and they asked the um, it was a hundred governments they asked across the world to give money so to raise $3.85 billion among a hundred countries is something that is definitely doable even even in these times where people are um, borrowing large sums of money um, due to COVID you know, I, I still feel like that's an entirely realistic goal to reach um, but they only received 1.7 billion dollars of the 3.85 that they were looking for so it's like you were saying with the vaccines Aaron, do you think that this is a a worrying sign of um, first world countries not realising their responsibility I guess to help struggling countries I mean, it's definitely an indicator in a way, and it's quite worrying. I, the thing that really bugs me and kind of makes me upset in a way um, is that I could get a vaccine, someone who's fit and healthy and 19 years old, um, I could get a vaccine before a frontline worker in, say, Kenya. Mm. And I think that's absolutely atrocious um, and I would happily um, not get a vaccine until somebody until other people, the most vulnerable people in ev- in the whole world gets a vaccine um, I just think it, it's you've got to think is it selfish or is it selfless and I get like times like this you have to be selfish in a way um, yeah. But you also can look at the fact if more places around the world are vaccinated, that works out better for us in the long run. Yeah. So I, think I don't know. It, it is a. You're right. It is a an indicator of uh, possibly of things to come. But there's a slightly different um, responsibility in the two cases because on the one hand, Britain is directly involved with the destabilisation of the area of the world um, around Yemen. Britain is historically has always had a presence there and mm. has uh, done more than anyone else to destabilize the region um, and can you know can be directly uh, held responsible for many of the wars there um, and so we absolutely have a, a, a historical responsibility to help stabilize that region um, it's a little bit I suppose it's a little bit different with the vaccines because uh, our government first and foremost has a duty to protect us its citizens and uh, there's slightly less incentive 
uh, to protect the rest of the world. But in, in, ter but in, in, in the case of the, the war in Yemen, there's absolutely a responsibility there. Um, and I think, uh, I think yeah, th this, this, should, this should be much bigger news. Yeah, because the only the only outlet I've seen really covering it to any sort of extent is um, the Guardian, and they've they've done a good job at you know laying out the facts. Um, but yeah, I get what you're saying about the UK doesn't have as much of an obligation um, to help the rest of the world with the vaccination program because obviously it's not well, it's not the UK that is responsible for the vaccine, you know, the reason that we have it in such large supplies is because um, we gave a lot of money to these companies that have been manufacturing them, but obviously in Yemen, a lot of the um, institutional, pro like the institutional economic problems that come from that region of the world are down to uh, the, the old British Empire. Um, and yeah, it's just it's a it's a sad thing to see that essentially they can help but don't want to, and it's the whole it's the whole thing of oh we're we're doing it because we need to look after our own, which doesn't hold up for me anyway because that's what they said before it's like you know we're cutting humanitarian aid because we need to look after our own so it's like oh so with all that money we've saved we can give free meals to school kids and it's like well you'd think that but no we're <laughs> yeah. not going to do that either they, they um, could have they could have started by giving that 22 billion on the uh, hopeless uh, test and trace system to yemen yeah um, so yeah we're wasting we're wasting way more money in our own country than we are abroad yeah it's like we're we're making savings here to look after our own so um are we going to look after the more than 2 million unemployed um not unemployed, self-employed people. More than two million self-employed people who have not um, received any kind of financial support from the government yet, because um, they've said that they've not like provided adequate documentation or whatever it is. It's just it's not something that stands up. When I never thought I'd see a government that literally had to be bullied into feeding school children it's ridiculous the Quite fact a that footballer yeah you have to be you you need more motivation than the simple fact that there are children who will go hungry in your own country and in a country like the uk that's shocking in itself oh by um, the way uh, i've just checked and the cost of the test and trace bill has just risen to 37 billion yeah um, so yeah i saw that yeah there you go <laughs> that's 37 billion that can be given to yemen because <laughs> It is just um, or even ridiculous. To the it's a ridiculously useless system. Yeah, that as well. It's like we need to look after our own. So we're going to give a pay rise to NHS staff, and it's like, yeah, we'll get we'll give them a one percent pay rise. I mean, I don't for for people for people who are entry level nurses on practically minimum wage. I don't even know what an extra one percent gets you, but I can imagine. It's not going to make a difference, even remotely. No, nurses start on what about eighteen thousand pounds. Yeah. Um, so no, that makes that makes almost zero difference. Yes, yeah, it is astonishing the the way the money is thrown around, uh, as if we have unlimited amounts of it, and yet on the other hand, we're we're cutting corners in places where there's no need. Yeah, because that's what surprised me about the spring budget. Because I watched the statement that Rishi Sunak gave because I. Um, wrote an article for it for the debrief website and 
there was no there was no mention of the NHS in his spring budget, and that was the first thing that um, Keir Starmer jumped on when it was time for the leader of the opposition to speak. He just said, he just said basically you didn't mention the NHS or social care at all, and to give NHS staff a one percent pay rise is ridiculous. The fact that um, they have the fact that they have to pay for parking at their work is ridiculous and the fact that you would cut humanitarian aid to a country where a lot of people could die without that money that's just ridiculous as well because they've said that obviously the effects of Covid economically are going to take a long time to recover from because there was a lot of misleading statements about that you know Rishi Sunak was saying you know they're expecting that the economy will recover by next year. It's like, well, even if that's the case, it'll be people like us that are paying off these COVID bills for pro- probably decades. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, I, I've I've got I've got two close friends uh, who are in nursing, um, and they've only just one of them's only just graduated. The other one was on uh, placement, but they're already working extremely hard due to the pressures put on the system by uh, coronavirus. And I can't imagine what it's like having worked, you know, in that system, uh, overworked in that system for 10, 20 years, and then having to go through a year like this and just not be celebrated beyond clapping in the streets for a month uh, on a Thursday. Um, I think I think most, most sane people would agree that they deserve uh, a, a lot more. Yeah. yeah. And what's actually also interesting is... Um, I can't remember what the consensus was with the Scotland NHS bonus, but my mum received it um, this month or last month, um, and it was taxed. So, yeah, it's just <laughs> this government really don't make it easy for themselves, do they? they no. But um, yeah, if you if you are a member of NHS staff um, and you want to vent about how abysmal your 1% pay rise is or how much that 1% actually gives you, then drop me a message on Twitter because I would love to have a chat with you and I'd like to potentially write a story about it because I I feel like it's a total slap in the face and it's just the lowest form of recognition for your hard work that that could have been possible. You can't they can't give much less than 1%. So, yeah, if you've been affected by that, if you've got this massive injection of cash flow coming in, this 1%, this extra 6 quid a week or whatever it is, then, uh, yeah, be sure to let me know. But um, that is time up today on this episode. Um, so, Niall, Aaron, thank you very much for joining me and thank you for picking such good stories as well. Well, thank Thanks. you for having us. Yeah, it was for It was a very interesting episode, I thought, and um, I hope you enjoyed it as well. Take care.